So I want to bring a word this morning. Um, you know, these last couple of years, I think the church has gone through a little bit of battering internally, externally, right? Some issues that um, we've had to deal with um, this last few years. Uh, I mean, either you are anti this or we were, we were branded anti this or anti that or pro this or pro that, right? And then, of course, you see the current events that are going on. Um, uh, you, I mean, if you're not reading the newspapers, you'll be fine. Right? If you are, we we are a little we we are a little bit battered and bruised these last few years, right? And I'm not going to touch on any of those issues, but I want to say it's not new. The early church went through this as well, and the early church um, we've we have the we have records of it recorded for us in the book of Acts and the letters that were sent. Do you know? And this is why we always get into trouble because we do a lot of our church rules and regulations based on the letters, um, not so much on the Gospels, you know, um, because there were certain guidelines and rules that were spoken to the churches um, by Paul especially, you know. And the reason why he was doing that, there were issues the churches were going through issues, and so he had to speak into those issues as their spiritual father, you know? And so, um, I want to talk to you about 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. And um, now, the danger of going to such a popular text is that you say, I heard it all before. I know this stuff, right? So, I have nothing new to tell you about this passage of scripture, apart from saying that I think most of the time we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and the world loves this chapter. If, any, if ever there's um, chapters that the world loves, they love the, the Lord's Prayer. You know, you hear people, they love the Lord's Prayer. They love Psalm 23, right? And they love 1 Corinthians 13, right? Um, the Prime Minister of UK read uh, pass, uh, a passage from 1 Corinthians 13 for um, Princess Diana's funeral, you know, which was broadcast throughout the world and millions actually heard the word of God being read, you know. So we look at 1 Corinthians 13 and universities study it as one of um, uh, precious Greek poetic uh, passages, right? But it's not poetry. Paul was not writing poetry when he broke into 1 Corinthians 13. There's a context behind this chapter. And the context is really, he was writing to a church that was disunited, full of division, all right? And um, they, there were issues that were going on in the church, that the church was just being torn apart by these issues, and they were destroying their witness in the community, right? But the issues, issues came from outside, right? They were struggling with race issues, the Jews and the Gentiles, right? And among the Gentiles, there were many different people groups, and so there were race issues going on outside, which started creeping into the church, 
right? There were gender issues that were going on outside that began to creep into the church. There was social status and issues going on out there, right? Different state status, um, free men, slaves, right? And all that was coming into the church. And so Paul had to address these issues in the church because it was having devastating effects on the community of God, right? And so in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he actually begins to address some of these issues, which was abuse of power, right? Jostling for positions, bad theology that had come out, um, use of scriptures for self-gain, divisions, schisms. So you, you name it. What we are going through in the church globally, they went through as well. And so Paul was addressing these issues, all right? And so when you come to 1 Corinthians 13, and if you say, oh, after all the rebuke he's giving to us, thank God he's writing us a nice little song, you'd be misreading 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, my dear friends, is actually a wake-up call, right? It's, it's um, half-time growling from your coach, Right? It's one of those moments when a dad says, it sits down the teenage kids and says, okay, we need to have a talk. 1 Corinthians 13 is that sort of text. Because right? in chapter 12, before Paul goes into chapter 13 of this whole conversation around agape love, he's dealing with one major issue there that's causing the division in the church, and that's the spiritual gifts. Right? And so he begins to speak about that. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25 and 26, he's addressing these issues. Then he says this, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So that, that's the the context of where he's going to now burst into what we would call a poetic song. But it's not a song, all right? It's, it's continuing to speak about this. And then I think another problem with the text is that in your English Bible, you will find that it's chapter 12 and chapter 13 are broken up, right? And so the last line of chapter 12 reads... Verse 31, so you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. And that line, now let me show you a way of life, or let me show you a more excellent way, is tucked into the last line of chapter 12. But actually, that line should be the beginning of chapter 13. Because he's give you the summary statement of chapter 12. You should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. That's it. He's closed that conversation or semi-closed that conversation about spiritual gifts, which is causing division, right? Then he opens up a brand new conversation, that coach during halftime, that sit down of the mom and dad with the, with the teenagers, and he's saying, we need to have a chat. He opens that line. He says, let me show you a way of life that is best of all. All right? NLT says that. NKJV says, yet I show you a more excellent way. 
right? NIV, I think, says the best way, right? So Paul has done all his reasoning about creating division, and he's using human reason to say, okay, the best thing is to, to desire spiritual gifts that are helpful for you, right? So that's human reasoning. Then he begins to talk about God way, right? I want to show you a more excellent way, right? You know, even as we look at all these conversations that are going on out there in the world, all right, I can't help but remind myself of Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We can have the wisest counsel from human beings and try human ways of doing things. End of the day, if it's a human way, it can only lead to death. But there is one way, a God way, that leads to Zoe, life. Only God can give life. Only God can bring about life. And that's why Paul is saying, we can talk all we want about wise counsel in, with rules and regulations in the church to preserve unity. But there's only one excellent way, one great way of, of doing this thing. All right? What is the way? Is the way of love. Is the way of agape love. Right? And so he begins that, the most excellent way. He uses this um, Greek word, hopebole. And um, it really means to throw beyond the usual mark. That's what that word excellent means, right? That means not to do what's normal, not to do what's common, right? You go beyond what is usual. The church is called to operate beyond the norm. The church is called to operate beyond human reasoning. The church is called to operate beyond best practice. You know, what's the best practice here? What's the best way forward, right? What's, what, how can we meet halfway, right? The church is called to go beyond that, right? To surpass that, to be more excellent than that, right? To be, to throw beyond the usual mark, right? And so Paul is saying, I want to show you a more excellent way of doing this. Right? A more excellent way of doing life. A more excellent way of doing our faith with God. Right? And so he begins chapter 13 with these three verses. Right? What a life without agape love will look like. Right? So he's actually denouncing a life without agape love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men... And of angels. You've got that, I think, in your notes. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. And that word love is agape, right? He uses the Greek word agape. Um, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Have you ever heard a clanging cymbal? Right? Crack, crack, crash, crash. Right? He's saying you can, you can be speaking in... Languages of men supernaturally. You can be speaking languages of angels beautifully, right? It sounds like clanging cymbals if there is no agape love. Though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He's saying you could be operating in the spiritual gifts, right? You could be speaking mysteries and people go, wow, this guy. 
How did he get that? That must only come from God, right? You could have word of knowledge and people go, wow. You could be speaking, having such faith that you have never seen before to the point that faith that could move mountains. He's saying, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. You may get the wow of the world, but as God sees it, it is absolutely nothing without agape love. Then he says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burnt, but have not love, it profits me nothing. In other words, I could do anything. I could feed the poor, eradicate poverty, right? I could, I could um, believe in something to the point that I'll give my life for it. But without agape love, it produces nothing, Right? So he's saying, without agape love, the church is all noise, will be nothing, will gain nothing. Without agape love, you and I are doing nothing, being nothing, and producing nothing. So he's basically saying, a, Christ, a Christian without agape love is sp spiritually impoverished. We are in poverty spiritually without agape love so he's denouncing a life without agape love then he goes on to define agape love so what is love right now that's important for him to define this and he's using the word agape right because the greek language had four you know this the greek word the greek language had four words for love right the english language only has love Right? But the Greek language had four words. Right? You had the word storge. And storge love was used for family. Right? The parent and child relationship. Right? That, that, that love that is not just biological, but it is there and it is accepted and it's assumed. Right? So it's storge love, family, parent, child love. The Greeks had also another word for love, which is filial. And filial love is this strong bond between friendships. It may not be by birth, but it's because you invested in each other's lives, you develop this strong bond of friendship. And they would describe that kind of love, filial love, right? Then there was the third word they used, eros love. And now, we, we tend to say eros love come, you know, it's erotic love. But that's not what eros really meant. Eros love was, yes, it was romantic. Yes, it was between two people. But it was two people investing in each other's lives to the point they were committed to each other for life, right? So there was this, this romantic love that invested between two people, all right? Then there was agape. Agape was this kind of love that was unconditional and always reserved for God, right? And so here's Paul not choosing storge, not choosing philia, definitely not choosing eros. In fact, you won't find the Greek word eros in any of the New Testament, right? Because, not because it's, it's erotic or romantic and God's not opposed to that, but because nowhere in the New Testament, right, does God glorify two people and removing everyone else? That's not love. 
true love cannot just be between two people. Right? There must always be another. Right? That's why God is Trinity. He's a community of love. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Then this person, God, the Trinity, loves the world. Right? So here's Paul using this word agape. And then he describes what is agape. Say agape love suffers long, is kind, it's, it does not envy, love does not parade itself, it's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Once in a way, not too often, once in a way, I changed the word love and put the word Andrew. It's, I tried that once. Somebody suggested it. And, oh, it feels really bad because you know where your shortcomings are. Love, Andrew suffers long. Andrew is kind sometimes. Andrew does not envy. Andrew does not parade it himself. Look what I'm doing right now. Andrew is not puffed up. Andrew doesn't behave rudely. Andrew does not seek his own. You know how it's going here. But once in a way, it's good to do that. Because then you know how far away we are from agape love. You know? And so, here's Paul. He has to define this love first. right? Because it is this love, right? this agape love, that... He is calling us to enter into because that's the most excellent way. Now, I've, I've said a few things here in your notes, right? Because agape love is not something you feel. It's not just something you feel. It's something you experience, right? You don't just feel somebody who's kind. You actually experience their kindness. You don't just feel feel the person not being rude to you. You actually experience that this person is not rude to you. You experience the person when he's not envious and puffing up, right? You experience when somebody thinks no evil of you. You actually can experience that. You feel that vibe coming, that positive vibe coming from this person, right? No matter what you're doing, they don't think evil of you. It is something that's experienced, right? Agape love, is not just something you do, it's something you become. You can do kind things, but you need to keep on doing kind things until you become kind. Agape is not something you just do. You got to become, right? Agape love is not something you feel with someone. It's something you experience with someone. And so Paul is calling us to become that most excellent way. Then he moves on after he defines agape love. In verse 8 to 10, he talks about if you actually begin to become this most excellent way, there's a permanency that occurs when the church is operating in this level. All right? In verse 8 to 10, he says, love never fails. Whether they are prophecies, they will fail. So we could be the most prophetic church, right? But we will still fail 
without love, right? Say, there are tongues, they will cease. We could all begin to speak supernaturally in all the tongues of this world, right? But without love, it will cease, all right? Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Because all of these things do not exist anymore in eternity, right? Because we will all be a prophetic people. We will all be, all languages will be understood, all right? Because it's the worship of love. So all these things will, then he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, right? But when that which is perfect has come, then all which is in part will be done away with. In other words, it will never fail. It's not partial. It'll never be useless. It'll never be done away with. If you invest in this most excellent way, you will never fail. Then he goes on to say in verse 11 to 12, this way of life, this most excellent way is an evolving way. It just doesn't start and stop, right? It grows. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know just as I also am known. So the context here is he's describing this way of life, this most excellent way. And he's saying this most excellent way leads you, all right, causes you to grow in maturity. You don't remain as a a child and some of the dialogue that's going on in the world today is so childish so immature so me 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 the last time when did you see the me 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 going on right in pack and save when the little kid five-year-old was demanding for a chocolate bar right sometimes we relate to one another and relate to the world like five-year-olds but the most excellent way will cause us to mature as we enter into this agape love way will cause us to grow up as individuals and as a church grow in maturity but agape love also enables one to see life with greater and greater clarity and my friend there's so much fog in our conversations today out there with the world we need clarity from God it's time we walked into the most excellent way, the way of love, agape love. Agape love will do a completing and perfecting work in the one who chooses this most excellent way. And then he closes his halftime conversation. Mom and dad now is closing after they speak to the teenagers who are quarreling away they close he, he closes with this now abide faith hope love these three he's saying faith hope and love will always be there when you walk into eternity you will see faith in perfection when you walk into eternity you will see hope in perfection when you see, walk into eternity you will see love in perfection. He says these three will abide always. But the greatest of these three is love. We must have faith. If we are to walk the way of God, we must have faith. But you cannot have faith without hope. And so faith and hope go together. 
But you know what? Faith and hope cannot exist outside the environment of agape love. That's why love is the greatest of all. It feeds your faith. It feeds your hope. It feeds your very being. Agape love is the most excellent way. So if you